David, thank you so much for your time today because I know how busy you are, particularly with lockdown just being announced. I won't go into that just now, but could you just tell us a little bit about your journey into politics? There are 650 MPs and there's no straightforward way in which to become one if you want to be a member of parliament. But I suppose I was one of those lawyers that, you know, would go down to the cells as a young barrister and ask bigger questions about why this young person was in prison. Or I would represent a small business that had gone bankrupt and ask bigger questions about why that business had gone bankrupt. And that starts taking you towards bigger questions of not just politics, but policy, because barristers, lawyers tend to deal with the problem one at a time. So, you know, I always knew I was a Labour person. My parents had always voted Labour. Like so many immigrants, I knew that Labour was broadly on our side. I had had to work really hard to become a lawyer. was very fortunate to become the first black Britain to go to Harvard Law School. I worked in California, but I did miss home. I, you know, I wanted to come back to Britain. I ended up coming back to Britain. And I didn't think there would be a role for me in national politics. But Tony Blair had just created the London Assembly. Ken Livingstone was returning as mayor. And so I started by seeing if I could get onto the Assembly as an Assembly member. And to get nominations, you had to sort of tour Labour parties in London. And I started to do very well. And people associated me with Tottenham. Very, very sadly, Bernie Grant was not well. He was dying and he did die a month after I got onto the London Assembly. And folks said, look, they knew me. They knew that David Lammy was from Tottenham, the new up-and-coming thing. And so I made the decision to put my hat into the ring to be the next MP for Tottenham. It wasn't easy because I had to run for his nomination against Bernie Grant's wife. But I knew that really Tottenham should be represented by someone who was from the seat. And somehow I marked the next generation, you know, second generation West Indian immigrant. I put my name forward. I was selected by the Labour Party and the rest is history. So if we kind of catch up to what we've been facing this year, had the pandemic to face, but also the kind of pandemic of racism and the brutal murder of George Floyd and the ensuing protests around the world. Here in Bristol, we have the toppling of the Edward Colston statue. How has your year been in reflection to what has been going on and how has it affected you personally? Well, look, I started off quite cynical. I've got to say, after the murder of George Floyd, cynical because you've got to understand from where I was sitting, this was not new. We'd seen this before. Many, many, many young black men have died in America. And indeed, I've been involved in cases of young black men dying here in the UK or suffering, certainly, at the hands of the police. So I started off a bit, why now? Why is this different? And it was only really as my phone began to rang and emails began to come in, I realized that probably because of coronavirus, probably because we were all at home, glued to the TV sets, watching the news for corona, also to social media, that this came as a massive interruption. And somehow it was the first moment of different news, the coronavirus, and it seriously cut through globally. So I started to realize that there was something happening. I think the other thing I would say why I was a bit not sure at the beginning is because politically, black pain is always presented 
in these moments as if it's new. And of course, it's not new. Black pain is present every day of the week. I mean, you open any newspaper, you'll see the gang crime figures, the knife crime figures. A young boy has been killed in my constituency overnight. It's sort of everywhere. But what might be different this time is not really a story of blackness. It's a story of whiteness, because it may well be that people are listening and wanting to do something in a way that has not been the case. And so I don't think this story is particularly about the black community. We know about racism. We know about systemic prejudice. We know about hardship. But it may be different for white communities who are particularly millennials, by the way, and Generation Y, who are allying themselves with the cause. When I look at what happened in Bristol, when I look at that statue coming down and being thrown into the water, what I see when I look at the images, there are lots of young white people gathering around to do that. And in a way, because of the review that I led for David Cameron, I know that were it young black people committing an act of criminal damage, the law could be quite harsh. Whereas it looked to me like those young white people are very much deploying what people are talking about at the moment, which is their privileged position to bring about some change. And they've certainly provoked a very important debate and discussion, but it needs to move beyond debate and discussion to action tangible change and there too you know i'm having businesses ringing me up talking about what they can do what more they can do and so there's quite a lot of hope i think at this point and on that note what are the changes that we can make what can we do how can we actually make a difference and ensure that we do make some progress i think the first thing to say is that being an ally is active it's a verb it means doing stuff calling it out i think that in employment we've got to be clear we need targets there has to be a degree i think of positive discrimination because positive discrimination is present in the workplace usually to the benefit of white middle-class men (laughs) who don't even realize they're beneficiaries of it so there's got to be a degree of that and and I think in terms of criminal justice system and so many others, we just have to get on and implement what has been recommended. I recommended 35 recommendations. They haven't all been implemented by the government. There are so many others over so many years. We've got to get past this tendency to want more evidence, more data. We have to act and we have to challenge. You know, this is a definitely a political time when you've got the Trumps of this world, the Farages of this world and others. It's it's a time where we have to challenge those in power as well and and they're in our country and that that involves protest and campaigning. And voting and getting to, and how we vote. And voting them out. (laughs) Yeah. Now, Ujima Radio is a community radio station and we celebrate African and Caribbean cultures 365 days a year. The mainstream media is vastly underrepresented and lacking in diversity and we are facing more and more fake news. What do you think is the importance of community radio at this time? Oh, look, I think that community radio has always played a central role in and part of that role in not just informing black, Asian and minority ethnic communities, but culturally speaking to and for black, Asian and minority ethnic communities in a world in which I grew up not seeing myself reflected. It's really, really important that one understands when we're talking about minorities, black people make up 4% of our population. 
And so there's a really, really important thing about being heard, being seen, being in a safe space, not having to explain. And I think that's where stations like Ujima play a huge, huge difference. Obviously, I agree. Well, we need independent journalism, don't we, just to move away from all this fake news. You do, because you might say, oh, we're in an age of social media, you can get it all on Twitter, but that's really dangerous. You know, there's a lot of conspiracy theory out there. There's a lot of misinformation. It's quite dangerous, a lot of echo chambers. You still need trained professionals to assist in disseminating truth, news based on judgment, based on fact, based on sources, not just based on a rumour mill. Well, exactly. And that's the problem, isn't it? Social media isn't monitored or and we can't trust the news we get on it. Here in Bristol, especially since lockdown, there's been a really serious spike in knife crime. Young black men in the city I've spoken to are more scared about that than racism. What would you like to see done to curb this? Do you have any ideas to why it's happening? Well, look, the bottom line is as painful and horrendous as it is. And as I said, I had a young man stabbed through the heart in Tottenham just overnight. I'm so sorry. Um, And I, you know, I've talked about these issues now for many years. It is important for me to say categorically that the issue is not really the knives and the gangs. The issue is the drugs that sits behind it. And, you know, I've met so many of these young men and they barely know where Colombia is. And they certainly haven't had the means to organise the transshipment of tonnes of cocaine from Colombia, through South America, through into Amsterdam, Spain, and then into our own country. So until the government addresses drug policy and has a broad view of drug policy, given that we all know that the war on drugs has failed, I'm afraid we're not going to deal with this problem because county lines and turf wars are in principally about drugs and the movement of cocaine and marijuana across the country. And very, very sadly, what's happening is young black boys are being pimped to do this work. It's not a new thing, it's an old thing. Just read Oliver Twist. There will always be poorer young people in cities like London or Bristol that can be preyed on by adults to do their dirty work. That's what's going on. And the government needs to have an attitude and a position on drugs. And they need to frankly go after the gangsters who are often men in suits and men who do not look like me, by the way, who are trafficking these drugs globally. Last week, Keir Starmer commented on how he thinks the Bristol bus boycott should be part of the national curriculum. We've just finished with Black History Month. How do you feel about these subjects that aren't discussed in school? I mean, it's it's extraordinary that the Bristol bus boycott isn't. You know, Stevenson's work was extraordinary. It led to the Race Relations Act, the first Race Relations Act of the late 1970s. It's terribly worrying. You can't tell the story of modern Britain and tell the story, for example, solely through the lens of Margaret Thatcher and Reaganomics and capitalism (laughs) and winter of discontent if you don't also tell the major culture social story of that period, which is the work to outlaw discrimination for the first time. And Bristol was at the centre of that. The Bristol bus boycott was at the centre of that. Um, And of course, the social unrest in that period. And I'm thinking of the Tottenham riots, the riots in St Paul's in Bristol, Brixton riots. This is hugely, hugely important. And we simply can't paper over 
the heroes of that time. And Paul Stevenson was one of them. And there's so much history that is our history. In Keir Starmer's Twitter feed, somebody replied by going, well, why is that, why is that of interest to anybody outside of Bristol? Which I found remarkable. History is British history. Exactly. And also look at the importance of Rosa Parks' story, you know, that's shared worldwide. Why wouldn't we share the story of the Bristol bus boycott? I wish that when I was at school, I knew about it. I yeah. didn't know about Bristol until I was well into my 20s. Sadly, outside of Bristol, the bus boycott has hardly been documented and the importance that it's had on, on UK culture, including the impact of the post-war African and the Caribbean migrants we've come to know as the Windrush generation. Can we just touch on what you think the significance of this generation is? Oh, this is a generation that came to this country and gave so much and took so little. My parents were among them. My father came here in 1956. They were often coming from rural parts of the Caribbean and they rebuilt this country after the war. The modern NHS that we applauded at the beginning of the coronavirus is very much down to them and their hard work and all those nurses that came. The rebuilding of our railway system across the country, the rebirth of manufacturing, these were very, very special people. And it's important to recognise that when they came, they came as British citizens because their ancestors were taken from Africa to the Caribbean as enslaved people. And then they got their freedom in the 1830s. They didn't have any money, but they started again. In a sense, they were encouraged to come to Britain because they'd served in both the First and the Second World War, many of them, and because the Caribbean, after the end of the slave trade, and the sort of breakdown of the sugar plantations was economically struggling. So Britain owes a responsibility to these people. There is an inextricable link to these communities. The Windrush scandal is a permanent, indelible stain on that story. But the contribution of the Windrush generation is immense. And I pay tribute to them because without them, I certainly would not be a member of parliament and the Shadow Justice Secretary. David, thank you. What can we expect from you in the future? <laughs> well, I mean, politics is a pretty up and down game. I I'm very proud to be Shadow Justice Secretary and to be serving in Keir Starmer's Shadow Cabinet. I'm not going anywhere, so let's see. <laughs> let's see.